And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on. And Aston Martin kicks off the biggest week of F1 launch season by revealing the AMR24, a car that also gave us a hint about what to expect from the new Mercedes on Wednesday. But will this new car herald a return to Aston Martin's early 2023 form, and has it learned the lessons of last year it needs to if it's to guarantee making development progress throughout the season? I'm Ed Straw and joining us with all the answers are Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Well, as these podcasts are getting thick and fast, we'll get straight into it. Mark, we'll get into the car in real detail in part two of the podcast. But Aston Martin generally, it's in an interesting place, isn't it? Because the big question is whether it can do what it did at the start of last season when Alonso was a podium regular, or if it'll be a little bit more like the back end of the season, certainly the middle stages when it was a bit troubled. So where do you see Aston Martin is right now? Yeah, you're right. It is an interesting place. And I think they were a little bit caught out themselves by how good they were at the beginning of last year. I don't think they were expecting to be the second fastest car behind the Red Bull, um, which they were for quite a few quite a few races early in the season. Um, and partly, you know, in hindsight, that was a function of how Ferrari and Mercedes in particular were underperforming. And how McLaren only, you only saw the true performance of the McLaren once it got its mid-season upgrades on. And so that, that gave us sort of a slightly misleading picture because although they might have been the second fastest to Red Bull during that time, they weren't really a, a threat to the Red Bull dominance. They were just the next fastest car. I mean, it was only in, only in Monaco, which was the, the Red Bull's weakest track, really, those, those slow corners, was the Aston a genuine threat. So... Um, I think then that created a lot of expectation, put a lot of expectation upon the team, and they, they, they sort of sunk down more to the level, I think, that they would have expected in the, 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 the sort of back end of the season is about where I think they would have expected to be. And you had that middle chunk where they just they'd put developments on and it took the car in the wrong way in terms of balance and they had to sort of backtrack a bit to, 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 to find home again and, and start start from there. So, um, yeah, in terms of the expectations, it's it's probably applied a bit more pressure because of everybody's had a taste of seeing Alonso in a, a, a you know a, a car which is capable of being put on the front row and leading races, and um, you know there's prob- probably a, a quite a hunger to see something like that again. Um, there's probably a bit of pressure being applied from Lawrence Stroll, the owner, because you know he will have enjoyed that and he'll be expecting more of that. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where they've actually managed to sort of pitch the car as a starting point this time and see what uh, developments they can put on it through the season and what what impact that has. How do you see it, Gary? Because it's a little bit worrying. They did have those wobbles last year. They were introducing upgrades. They were creating characteristics they didn't entirely expect or like, and they were doing a lot of mixing and matching. They recovered quite well the last few race weekends, but still not to the level they were in terms of of the, the deficit. But 
would you be a little bit worried about that? They seem quite confident they've learned the lessons, but equally, that's only tested by how the car performs and how it develops. Um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't say it uh, any better than what Mark said. It's one of those sort of situations where your level of competitiveness is only relative to everybody else. <clears throat> There's 10 teams out there and 20 drivers. Um, and, it, you know, the, you, you can't control the others. You can only control yourself. So, um, again, I think the wobble in the middle of the season over all last year didn't look great, but it actually probably taught them a lesson. It, it, you, know, you have to dig deep when those things happen. If it's all singing and dancing and you get no problems, then you get on to fix. So you, you, tend to, you tend to just keep on motoring along merrily, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But when you, when you trip up, that's the time you've got to dig deep and find solutions to it. And I, I think they did that fairly well. And as Mark says, you know, the end of the season was probably a true representation of last year because McLaren had found their feet. Um, a few of the other teams had tidied themselves up. So, you know, where they end up at for those last three or four races was probably real. And that's the thing I think we need to judge them against going into 2024 because, uh, you know, as I say, they, they were very competitive at the beginning of the year, but mainly because some of the others screwed up. Um, and again, that can happen quite quickly. It's easy to make a mistake because, you know, no team out there, and this includes Red Bull, genuinely know 100% of what makes the car fast. You know, and, and I think Singapore was an example of that to Red Bull. You know, they, they had a drop-off there, which meant they had to dig a bit deeper to find their, find their feet again. Um, so no team, you know, it just, it, it just isn't impossible because there's characteristics that will pop up from a new car that you haven't even visualized, you haven't researched them, you haven't thought of a way of researching them. It's happened to me many, many times. You know, everything you do, you do better than you did before. But it's the things that you didn't do before that you screw up on and you don't understand them. And it takes some time. So I think, you know, until the cars hit the track, to be honest, everybody will, every team member um, will have their fingers crossed a little bit when the car hits the track and the characteristics come into it and how... You know, what the driver thinks of it, but more importantly, what the stopwatch says about it. And, and you know, we really won't know that until Bahrain. So um, I think they'll be having fingers crossed. I like what I've seen so far. They're obviously into their new factory. They're settled in. Everything's functioning there better. You know, it's not a mid-season move. It's, um, it's, it's now, you know, it's now their factory. So, um, yeah, I think they're on the way forward. Um, but as I say, I think we should judge them against the end of last season as opposed to the beginning of last season because that was a bit of a a bit one-sided, really, with the other teams having made a few errors. One thing I did find interesting, Mark, when we had our little media session with Dan Fallows, the technical director, we both had a go at asking him versions of this question about the lessons of last year. He said to you they were confident they'd, they'd learn them. I, I tried to get a little bit of an idea from him about whether those lessons meant they had to change what they were doing with the 24 aero development because sometimes you have to kind of take a step back and slightly change what you're doing with the direction but he dodged that element of it so obviously he's under no obligation to talk about that in detail but that that for me is the really really interesting thing has that had a little bit of a delaying factor on the development progress they've made because admitted things have been a bit of a rush at times so I, I do wonder if in parallel to the kind of scrambling to make last year's car work the way it was feeding into the 24 development that was already very well advanced by that stage must must have been a relevant factor. Yeah, it's interesting whether to know whether he, he was dodging it because he, he knew the answer and, and didn't want to reveal anything just for reasons of competitive secrecy or 
or whether they, they, they genuinely haven't probably nailed that yet, and, and which, which would be obviously a worry going into this season if they haven't. But, you know, quite a lot of that... Um, that updating and that uh, recalibrating that they were doing in the, fr- from the Austin upgrade onwards will have been relevant to this car because the, the, the regulations haven't changed significantly. Um, you know, a few little details, but not nothing that's going to impact seriously on the concept of the car or the way the car works. So I think, yeah, it's um, there. There will be there will have been for sure that you, you can't. It's inevitable that you're going to use up some resource. Um, that you hadn't planned on using in terms of time and and, and people uh, correcting a problem that you hadn't anticipated. But on the other hand, if you have nailed it, it will have fed into this one. So it's difficult to know whether that will have been a negative or a positive. Yeah, it's certainly an opportunity. That's the important thing, Gary. Obviously, that's what, when things go wrong, it's beneficial for, isn't it? It's a chance for you to learn and understand, but it all depends whether you get to the root cause. You could understand what's not working as you hoped, but diagnosing the exact origin of it, that's, I guess, where the uh, where the technical personnel earn the big bucks. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's an important thing. You know, you can't fix a problem unless you recognise it. And I think uh, if you don't have those problems, you can't really get your head around it. It's, it's, it's very difficult because, you know, Aerodynamics going into the wind tunnel was a you know was a was a program that that will have been set you know and and the, and the parts being made and stuff you know three months ago so or three months before they're actually in the wind tunnel because the wind tunnel you know sixty percent wind tunnel models etc it's not you know it's not just a bit of cardboard taped up nowadays it's, it's a major component with major loads so it's the reaction time of all that stuff it takes time to develop it it takes time to get it on the car. And then you realise you've got a problem. So, you know, you have to go go back and analyse it all again and see where that problem could have come from. And the aerodynamist's duty is every day of, of, you know, every hour of every day, find more downforce for less drag. That's the objective. But what you've got to do is make sure that downforce you're finding is, is usable around downforce. And one of the questions that was asked of Dan Fallows that I read in, his, in the transcript was the fact that he, you know, one of his answers... Um, was rather than thinking about individual races, from an engineering point of view, we have to make a car that is capable of operating at any circuit and being competitive. And that's really what we're focused on, making a car that's usable, that's good for the drivers. Uh, to me, that sentence says everything, you know. That's what you have to have. The, 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 the human being driving the car is, is that bloke. And he has to be confident in what he's doing and that the car will be underneath him at all points in time. So... You know, picky downforce is not what you want. You know, spit you off into the hedge a couple of times, and then you don't get near the limit anymore. So, if if he, he's found the solutions to that, the to the answer to that question, then that's that's a positive step. Well, we'll get into the detail on the car in a second. But first, if you have any questions on any car launches that we've had so far or any that are upcoming this week, we'll be doing a special car launches Q&A podcast exclusively for members on Friday. If you'd like to ask a question and indeed listen to that podcast, you'll need to join the Race Members Club and what better time to do it because we currently have an amazing offer running. For a limited period, we're offering a one-month free trial membership, meaning you can enjoy everything the Race Members Club has to offer, including exclusive members-only podcasts, early access to bring back V10's episodes, 
a reduced ad environment on the website, exclusive access to the race.com comments section, member discounts and much more. And that's before we take any money from you. After your free month, it'll cost you just £2.99 a month to remain a member, less than the cost of a cup of coffee. So what are you waiting for? Sign up today and enjoy a free month on us. You can find full details on how to join by clicking the link in the description in this episode. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Right, Gary, let's look at the car in detail now. You've been studying all the images at great length. Obviously, there's interest in the fact that we've got to look at the Mercedes rear suspension, which has switched from pull rod to push rod. Of course, Aston Martin gets that from Mercedes. Obviously, it's difficult to get 100% on top of the geometry from the uh, from the images, but you've got a reasonable idea of what's going on there which could be quite significant both for Aston and Mercedes um yes I mean it's a, it's a little bit confusing obviously the pictures that we see are are all we can comment on it and going from the pull rod to the push rod that my my only thing is again as I say it's very difficult to see them all with these you know black suspension components and to into a black hole down in between the wheel and the bodywork but it does look like the push rod is at a very very shallow angle um and it doesn't quite look like the push rod anchors on the upright assembly um, at the bottom wishbone. Normally the you know the push rod and the bottom wishbone would, would connect together and that forms a triangle which uh, that um, puts a compression load into the push rod and a, theoretically a tension load into the bottom wishbone. But it doesn't quite look like they join up there. So I'm not sure what's in there, how it all goes until we see it maybe in a bit more detail. It's comparing to last year's Aston Martin it's um, you know it's pretty different. The, the top wishbone has more angle on it, um, like an excessive amount, I'd say. Probably if if it's if you could sort of imagine finding the horizontal through there, it's one of those sort of situations where, again, everything's at an angle. The pictures are at an angle. It's very very difficult to see in detail. 
But um, the the lower wishbone assembly, whereas last year's Aston Martin one was was basically a a, a triangular section which had um, two inboard mounts and then one outboard mount with the drive shaft going through the middle of it between those two inboard mounts and then a tow link separated it. So it's had a, a sort of triangular wishbone with a tow link to adjust the, the rear toe. Um, this this one doesn't look like that. It looks you know, maybe even the other way around because the tow link might be at the front and the um, and the bottom, the wishbone itself at the back. So it's it's a really complicated thing to see within the black lines that we have there. But I would you know, I would say that the, the one thing that's really possible to see is the push rod, and it really does look at a, a very shallow angle. You know, obviously the, the relationship, as I say, to the bottom wishbone is very important. And for the pull rod system last year, it's a relationship to the top wishbone. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what mechanisms there are in there driving that push rod because, you know, it could be something trick as well, but we have to wait and see. Yeah, of course, the inboard stuff that we can't see is crucial to the suspension. But Mark, as a whole, obviously, this is all in the direction we'd expect, wouldn't we? Because there's a bit more anti-dive on the front suspension as well from what we've seen. So this is all about the push we're always talking about for greater platform control for everyone. Yeah, um, it seems to have been increasingly recognised by teams other than Red Bull that uh, the, the, the suspension and the aerodynamic platform are... Um, much more intricately linked than in the pre-22 cars. Uh, so I think it's sort of, uh, yeah, converging ever more, although um, they've, they've still retained the push rod front, where, you know, Red Bull went straight to pull rod front and, and, and push rod rear. Um, so it, 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 it is, you know, Mercedes have gone this direction and taken Aston with them. Um, I thought it was quite interesting that um, Dan Fallows was saying, you know, from 2026, we we won't be um, inheriting Mercedes suspension anymore. We'll be doing we're doing our own gearbox and rear suspension. Um, and I wonder if they if they feel that's not this is not a direction they would have chosen to go. Uh, and I've just had to optimize around it, but um, let, let's wait and see. Yeah, I did get the impression, obviously, for 26, they've got to go their own way. But yeah, there was, in some of his language, a certain hint of slight frustration. Not not massively, but you just feel that maybe they thought there was a bit more they could do. Uh, who knows? But Gary, let's look at the rest of the car. What are you making of it aero-wise? It's certainly a nice, tidy, detailed car, isn't it? That's the general impression. Yes, I think it is. It's um, Detail is, is definitely a step forward from last year in, in lots of areas, in my opinion. Um, I mean, if we if we start at the very front of the car, because obviously that's what the the, uh, the old buzzing bee sitting inside of the track or sitting on the track would see first of all when the car's coming towards it, it would be uh, be the front wing. Um, they've got a, you know the slot gap between the nose and the and the front wing main plane, the very forward element, which I like because that allows you to have the underfloor of the nose a bit more aggressive curvature and still get flow attachment on that surface to feed the, the centre part of the underfloor. The centre part of the underfloor is a is really important part, the part between those two inner splitters that we see on the floor. That's really the part of the floor that the diffuser really has to work with because the turning vanes or those, those vertical splitters as we see them on the front floor, they're turning that airflow of the front corner of the floor outwards um, and trying to scavenge as much out of there and having a sort of small triangular diffuser at the front of the car. 
Um, obviously, at the bottom of those splitters, because they curve around so dramatically, they'll, it'll be shedding shedding flow off the bottom edge, which can set up a, um, a very strong vortex, which is really on, on sort of track surface. So it does mean that the, the, the underfloor is not so critical to the track surface. So all of that part is very important for, for allowing the diffuser to work more consistently. And I think that's one of the areas where Red Bull really had got their head around it all. But it's, um, it all starts at the front wing. So they've got the, you know, the nose, the front section of the nose that we see there. In the wing area, it's got a nice radius on the cor- top corners, allowing the fluid to slip around the sides or to, to uh, slide off the top of the nose around the sides over the top of that part of the front wing. The flow underneath onto the underneath of the nose would be good. So the, the air flows through between the front wheels, and especially on car centre line, will be a decent step forward from last year. And then that's the flow that the rest of the car has to work with. So if you can optimise that a little bit, you have got more high energy flow going through the rest of the car. And the front suspension, as I say, we've, they've retained the, uh, the push rod. I think, you know, the, the debate will still be there as to what's, what's the best mechanically and aerodynamically. Mechanically, it's quite tough to do the pull rod properly, but I'm not 100% sure some people say the pull rod is better aerodynamically. I think I would, I would like the, the pull rod because I think you can, um, how would you say, cheat the regulations a bit or go into the grey area of the regulations because the, the regulations allow you one rocker to turn the motion of the push rod or pull rod into a damper or into a, um, a, a torsion spring. And by definition, you need an arm on the torsion spring and you need a rocker to turn the corners. So if you put those two together with a link, you can end up with sort of two two mechanisms to increase the rising rate. And these cars, the front of the car, you want to keep away from the ground as much as possible. Whenever you hit the brake pedal, you're probably transferring something like, you know, weight transfer with the centre of gravity height, probably 300 kilograms or something onto the front axle. Um, and you don't want the car to dive into the ground. You know, you'll actually see it initially whenever you, you watch the, the car. If you watch it just at the end of a straight, you'll see the, um, just before the DRS shuts, you'll see the front of the car sparking um, and the driver will hit the brake pedal and 300 kilograms will sort of transfer onto that front axle. But the, rear, the DRS shutting will just stabilise that and aerodynamically stabilise it. So it's a, it's a matter of playing with the suspension and the aerodynamic platform, as Mark says, and, and just making sure that one compensates the other or complements the other even. So yeah, the front, suspe- front suspension... Out to lunch on that one, not quite sure what's right. The front wing assembly, they've gone for a system that's got more outwash around the front tyre and better flow through the middle of it. And then we get to the, the leading edge of the side pod and they've sort of um, exaggerated the, the letterbox or the duckbill inlet or whatever you like to call it to an extent that it's really just a top surface with a hole in it. Um, which, you know, is a sensible thing because when you had the normal top surface of a side pod with a radiator and let inside it, the air accelerated across that top surface and actually got you got lift on the top of the side pod for that first, you know, I don't know, twenty centimeters or something. There's a low pressure area on there, which is not what you want. So by putting the the uh, the inlet there, then you know you, you reduce that surface area to give you that lift. So you you get more downforce as such because you got less lift. Um, but it also means that they get you'll get more spillage from the radiator when the radiator blocks up so that the flow will be pulled out of that radiator duct and go over the top surface. So then, you, you know, like Aston Martin have had for a long time now, that gully 
in the top of the side pod to to allow that uh, excess flow that's coming over the top of the side pod to somewhere to go down into the middle of the car, which will help the diffuser a little bit. So a lot of good detail on it, you know. It's just everything's been exaggerated a little bit, I think, which is, you know, that's the way to go, to be honest, for them. You just don't want to make sure they don't dig that hole they had in the middle of last year. But I don't see that in this car at the moment. My my reservation at the moment would just be hanging around the rear suspension. It is interesting, Mark, isn't it? Because Gary picked through a lot of the detail there. This car is in a similar direction to Red Bull, but I think there's a tendency for people to think it's just a Red Bull clone because of the history of Dan Fallows. But there are areas where it's diverging. They're obviously a lot of this aero detail themselves. Themselves, They're generating with their own in-house work rather than just trying to copy. So it does look in a reasonably nice place, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And I mean, all, all the cars are converging towards uh, what what is becoming apparent as, as the the best solution. And, and Red Bull hit upon it earlier than the others. So, it, you know, it, it's it's not particularly more like a Red Bull than, than many of the others, really. And um, certainly the uh, the gully that uh, Gary referenced, that was um, an Aston innovation last year that's been widely copied. But interestingly, not by Red Bull. They, they've done it a slightly different way. But, um, yeah, that, that, that whole section has been reshaped a little bit you can see that the, the, the gully itself is a bit narrower and, and a bit deeper um and i'd i'd be interested in, uh, interested to ask gary about that relationship between that uh that lip coming forward which is very much enhanced on this car and the um the arm above that on which the the, the mirrors are mounted and if there's any interaction between those two things to to try and help the air go down that gully yeah, I mean, the, the two of them work hand in hand, for sure. The the arm that mounts the rear view mirror and the rear view mirror itself is like halfway along that opening. So, you know, if you if you look at it logically, you're, you're going to get the flow coming at the front of the car. That lower lip will separate that flow into the, the undercut and the side pod, as we call it. And the airflow then will pass theoretically over the top of the side pod inlet. And... Um, and over the top of the side pod surface, but the obviously the radiator has to get some flow, so some of that will be turned down into that um, into the radiator inlet, and the the, the mirror mounting the angle of what we can't quite see in detail, but you could either use the mirror mount there to um, to turn that flow down into the radiator duct by that little bit, um, or you could use it to just stabilise the flow, so you you, you don't let, allow it to change direction. So it will be used as a turning vein for sure. And that turning vein will be optimized. The angle of that turning vein will be optimized to uh, to get the radiator flow that you want and to manage the radiator flow. And I say it's one of the things that you know you can't you can't produce the, the, the radiator if it flows enough air to not have spillage. Then you will not have any cooling from um, from it because you have to stop the flow. You have to slow the flow down in the radiator to pick up the heat before it goes anywhere else. And you have to set that compromise of, of circuit speed at what you flow, the, the the radiator will flow. So below that, you will still get some cooling because if you didn't have the blockage, then the car at lower speed would just, would, just wouldn't cool. It would just be boiling its brains out. Um, so it's a compromise there. You, so you have as much flow as possible uh, through the at a lower speed and then at something like 200 k's or whatever, the radiator will start, the radiator will start to block up. And uh, that flow then, that spillage will, will be coming out of the radiator duct and going somewhere. And that somewhere, you don't want it to affect the main downforce producing 
surfaces, so it's better to allow it to go across the top surface and down into the middle of the car, which is, in the end of the day, pretty um, turbulent anyway. But it will help the diffuser that little bit at low ride heights because, again, the blockage on the radiator occurs at high speed, which means because of the load on the downforce of the downforce, the car will be at low ride height and um, needing a bit of help in the diffuser area. So it's a, it's a good balancing act of getting what we call low-speed downforce when the car is quite high and still not having um, high-speed uh, airflow separation problems when the car is at a low ride height. So I think the whole lot works hand-in-hand. Hand. Well, of course, this car has now run at Silverstone. It did a filming day today where you're allowed up to 200 kilometres now. The, the filming days have been doubled in terms of the distance you can cover, so that'll give the car a, a decent shakedown and uh, the driver some idea about how it's working. But as we've outlined in this section, certainly lots of interesting details to, uh, to understand, many that make sense and a few that raise a few question marks. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Mark, let's get on to drivers now because you wrote an interesting story that ran on our website about Fernando Alonso's future. Obviously, Aston Martin's keen to hang on to him, but there could be some serious competition. Yeah, well, look, the, the driver market landscape's changed pretty radically with Hamilton's move to Ferrari. Um, and Alonso's not been in any hurry to extend. He, you know, he's. You might think that's because he's not decided what he's he's going to do. He's forty-two years old, and he, he wants to see where he's going. But you know, the team principal there, Mike Crack, has been talking for at least second half of last season. Since then, last season, saying yes, we want to extend. We definitely want we want to keep him, and we want to you know. Get a contract that uh, everybody's happy with, and we, we we want we want we want more. Um, and he was asked. Fernando was asked about this um, in, in the media sessions, and he said he expects to be asked this for a few months yet. Um, so, indicating he's still not uh, in any hurry to convert, <laughs> you know, Aston's interest 
into a contract extension. His current contract only runs to the end of this year. So um, there's no reason why he would be in a hurry because the driver market's in a pretty interesting place at the moment. Uh, the longer he delays it, the more he gets a sense of uh, what the competitive landscape is going to look like. Now, the if he decides he is going to continue, and I get the sense from him that he wants to feel that the realistic there is a realistic chance in the time frame that he has left as a 42-year-old driver to another world championship. And if he thinks, if he's convinced that Aston is somewhere that offers him that possibility in the time frame that he has left, and he was talking about racing and possibly till he's late 40s, he said even possibly 50. In that time frame, if he's convinced that Aston can offer him that opportunity, then I guess that's what he does. He sits down and he said that that would be my first priority, my first preference. But he then almost did a sales pitch about why he's an attractive option for any team. And uh, he doesn't need to do a sales pitch, of course. Everybody knows exactly how fantastic a driver he is, but he... he, he He's never shy about uh, emphasising that, and he did. He, he laid it all out on the line, and he said, "You know, and if it, if I can't do a deal with Aston Martin, and I do decide I want it, well, you know, I'm I'm an attractive option elsewhere. There are only three world champions on the grid, and only one of them is available for 25." And uh, so, yeah, it one of the one of the possibilities that you, that opens up is Mercedes. Um, could he go there? And um, yeah, I think he's definitely on some sort of list there as, as a possibility. I don't think he's the plan A, from what I understand. But I think that he is potentially interested in them and they are potentially interested in him. But it's far too early uh, in, in the process to, um, to know, both from what Mercedes's plans are going to be and what what he decides he wants to do, but uh, yeah, he's 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 definitely in the market, and I think um, when he says he's going to have to decide whether he wants to continue or not, it's not because he doesn't love what he's doing or he's he's losing interest in it. He's quite objectively trying to assess: is there a route within my time frame to another world championship? which would be remarkable, wouldn't it? Because it's 18 years since he won his last one. Yeah, but he's definitely got an eye on that. At the very least, he wants a car that can win on a regular basis. And if you've got a car that can win on a regular basis, you should be able to go for a championship. What do you think, Gary? If you were Aston Martin, would you be very, very keen to be able to get Alonso to hang around? That would be a good validation of the work you've done, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, as, as Mark says, there's, there's three world champions on the, on the grid and one's available. The other two are, are sort of tied up. So he has that credibility behind him. But again, as you say, it's 18 years since the last one. So it's a long, long time. And during that 18 years, there's been other people popping up that are pretty good, but never really had the, the, you know, the real opportunity to, to show their true hand. So I think it's difficult because he's obviously with Aston Martin for 2024. And then we got 2025. And then in 2026, they're using a Honda power unit. And he didn't really endear himself with Honda in the last uh, little time together with, with them at McLaren, in my book. So I think 2026 with Aston Martin and Honda, it might become you know a different story. Okay, these are just politics, but you know, you got to think about these sort of things. And is Mercedes, 
you know, whatever we think about Mercedes, they're not just Mercedes. They're not like Ferrari. They're not just totally owned by Mercedes. It is, you know, there's three partners in that in that group. So Mercedes own a third of the of the Mercedes Grand Prix. And are they in a position where they would take in a you know a 43 year old to 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 fight for a world championship whenever there are other young drivers out there who would you know they would do anything they could to to uh, to drive for Mercedes. So it's it's one of these things where I think the balancing act, the longer it takes to make a decision to see who which team is competitive enough to potentially win a world championship might be detrimental to his future decision because during that period in time, lots of drivers coming up that are going to be there and doing a good job. So suddenly you could end up being being a little bit frustrated because you could have all the talent in the world, but there's somebody else there that's just got as much talent, but they have a lot more of a future that it'd be better to work with. So I think he needs to be careful not, if he doesn't sign someone soon that he could get left in the left in the grandstands. Well, talking of young drivers, Mark, you should probably complete your theory because you suggested that Alonso would be plan B. So what's plan A in this scenario? Um, plan A, I believe, is um, Kimi Antonelli, uh, who's um, about to embark on his first F2 season and um, is a Mercedes young driver and has been for about five years. And he's shown some pretty sensational form um, in the junior categories and in karting before that. And is very much believed to be the next Max Verstappen by Toto Wolff and others at Mercedes. And I think a lot depends on how his Formula 2 season goes, but if it goes as well as is generally expected, then I think he is the plan A um, to replace Hamilton directly. Um, but if not, if it's deemed that he's not quite ready, then, well, then it, you know there's the Mercedes-associated Williams team who could do a very similar program with them that they did with George Russell, whereby he does a couple of seasons at Williams, but is very much involved in the Mercedes uh, technical briefings and uh, simulator work and th- stuff like that. Um, so it, in such a situation, you only need a short-term um, sort of sit-in for that seat. And, you know, Alonso almost suggests himself, which he has done, of course. Um, so yes, I think that's um, that's how it fits in. That's why I don't think he's he's plan A. I think he he is a plan B. It's realistic, but I, I don't think he's a favourite. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because that Antonelli scenario very very plausible, but it does require F two going well for him. So let's see how that goes. But let's just wrap up now on Aston Martin, Gary, because I think they're in a really interesting position. As we said at the start, you can make a case for them being in quite a broad range of positions in the pecking order this year, can't you? So what's your feeling overall on Aston Martin? If you had to put your put your £10 down on where they're going to end up, what would you think? Well, you know, we haven't really seen the McLaren yet, but I don't see why if McLaren used the same logic as they did in the second half of last season for their development plan, and with the two drivers that McLaren have, that McLaren aren't the team that's challenging to be mixing it with those top three. We're assuming here that Red Bull, Ferrari and Mercedes will be the top three. But I think McLaren should be mixing it with them. And then that brings Aston Martin into the fray. I believe if they've done the step that I think, you know, looking at this car, logically, I think they have made a step. I think that should put them in that same position. So I think, you know, we could see, hopefully, um, let's say the big five, you know, to me, those those five teams 
should be able to trade places week in, week out. Now, whether one of them will get the big big advantage like Red Bull have had in the last year or year and a half, well, two years, um, it's difficult to know because you just got to, you know, make sure you don't make any mistakes. A small mistake with one of these cars can mean it becomes inconsistent race to race. And getting on top of that with all the budget caps and the development time and all that sort of stuff is not no easy task. So I think they need a little bit of luck, but I would I would be disappointed if we didn't see, you know, a closer big five, I suppose it is really that 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 bunch and Austin Martin being one of them to to duck and dive with that with that uh, that pack. And you know, not all of them have Whenever I say the top, you know, the big five, I'm talking about teams. It's not the big ten because I don't think they've all got drivers that are capable of of backing up the tools. So, um, yeah, it's for me. It's a you know, this is going to be a competitive season uh, as long as nobody has found that grey area that gives them that one big advantage. What do you think, Mark? Would you agree with that, or do you want to make a case for better or worse? No, I think I think they'll be in that mix. That that. Mercedes McLaren, hopefully Ferrari mix. Although there's a, I've got a few reservations about Ferrari, um, but hopefully Ferrari as well. Uh, and yeah, their, their position in the championship is is then, you know, it's a combination of both drivers. And I think uh, the other the other teams have got a stronger combination of um, drivers. Not that um, Lance Stroll's a bad driver, but the, uh, the the lineups that the other teams are are, are pretty epic. So I think. Yeah, that 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 makes it sort of they're fighting with a hand behind their back a little bit in terms of position in the constructors' championship, but not necessarily in terms of how competitive they are. Well, it's certainly going to be one of the most interesting teams to follow this season. It'd be good for Formula One if they can be back up there fighting for podiums as they were in the first part of last season. Thanks very much to Gary and Mark for your insight. Head to the race.com. Loads to read there about all the launches, including Gary's in-depth technical analysis of all the cars. It's on to the Ferrari launch tomorrow, so stay with us for everything you need to know for the world of Formula One. The Athletic.